welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Hello, this is Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, a founder and executive director of Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation. And it's really my honor to have our second edition of our Seat at the Table, where we have our members of WCAPS talk about issues of racism, discrimination, diversity, uh, inclusion, and being honest and being open and having a conversation that we want to share with others not just with people who are in our community of women of color and people of color, but others of others as well. Those who are not uh, people of color, those who are want to hear and learn about the conversations that we have amongst ourselves. And we think that this is an opportunity to not only share, but hopefully for others to better understand some of our thoughts and our concerns. So this particular conversation is going to be focused on things that are challenges and issues and thoughts by the South Asian community. And we'll be having more of these conversations. And and my colleague, Wartha Amir, will talk more about that. So without further ado, let's have our panelists introduce themselves. We have three amazing women here, all experts in their fields. And we'll start with Wada Amir, who is the co-chair of the WCAPS Chemical, Biological, Nuclear, Radiological uh, Security Policy Working Group, and who's been a brain, brainchild, one of our brainchilds for one of this for these uh, for these podcasts. So, Wada, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, thank you so much for that introduction, Bonnie. My name is Wartha Amir. As Bonnie mentioned, I've been working at WCAPS as the co-chair of the working group on chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear policy. I'm also currently a national security advisor at the U.S. Department of State. I was previously a fellow at the U.S. Department of Energy and the National Nuclear Security Administration, but today my views are completely delivered on a personal capacity. And I also want to introduce another one of our brainchilds for this uh, for this podcast and who was also at our first podcast, Lauren Williams. Lauren, you want to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much, Ambassador Jenkins. And I'm excited to be part of the second podcast and a part of this series as well. I am currently at the Department of Defense and previously was at the Department of Energy where I met Warda and WCAPS has really been a chosen community and such a big support for me in my national security career and here in DC and as well. All views and all comments are delivered in my personal capacity. Excellent. Thank you. And last but certainly not least is Nabila Jemshed. And she is a woman who I met, must be two years ago by now, or through Wartha. And she has a lot of expertise in many areas, including chemical issues. And we did an amazing podcast. uh, And many of you can listen to that if you go through our podcast through WCAPS on our website and hear one that we did on chemical weapons issues. 
So Nabila, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much, Ambassador Jenkins, Warda, Lauren. It's uh, such a privilege and a pleasure to join this conversation today. So I work with the United Nations in India. I have previously also served with, you know, in different capacities in the security space with UN peacekeeping. I worked in the OPCW with Warda actually a few years ago, which is where we first met. So yes, I have, a, a, you know, a lot of diverse experience um, as a woman of color in, in this sector. And again, as to echo everybody else, I'm speaking here in my personal capacity, although I will try to touch on different aspects of my work. Excellent. Thank you, all three of you. So let's start with just some questions, some background questions for all of you. And please chime in as you as you like and we can, as we get the conversation going. So let's start with the first one, which is what are your experiences with racism and discrimination colorism in the South Asian community. And whether do you want to go first? Like I said, just chime in as you desire. Well, first of all, I think this is a very important conversation for us to have. I think following our kind of initial conversation that we had on our last podcast, we thought it's important to take some of these uncomfortable conversations back to our communities and call out racism, discrimination, colorism. There's so many beautiful things about our culture, about the South Asian culture as well. And I celebrate those beautiful things, but it's very important for us to be very critical of the things that are not okay and may, do require change and action. For me personally, I identify colorism as a big issue in the South Asian community. I think I grew up, my early years of life were kind of spent in the United States. So I don't think that's a conversation for another time of what that felt like being a colored child in the United States. But then when I moved to Pakistan in the fifth grade, I remember kind of getting a whole new sense of colorism kind of thrown at me. I remember the amount of advertising that went into fair and lovely creams, the skin whitening creams, and how it almost felt like it was something that you should have as an essential product in your kind of grooming skincare routine. I don't like that that was kind of a constant thing that I would see, whether on all forms of media and advertising media, as something that people required in the South Asian community. I don't like that as a little girl growing up, I was told not to drink too much chai, which is kind of, you know, a darker browner color shade of, of tea uh, because it's going to make my skin darker. I was told to drink more milk because it makes your skin lighter. I was told not to go play out in the sun too long. You know, you're told you're, this beauty standard is set from a very young age in your mind that for some reason, you're not, your skin color is not okay the way it is. That you need to strive and achieve to have a skin tone that is different to your own. And I don't know why we go ahead and develop that insecurity at such a young age for young girls, particularly young girls in our community. And I don't know if that standard really kind of matches up the same way on the other side uh, for young South Asian boys. But for young girls, I know I think there's a higher beauty standard that is set there. And there's just other things I can talk about, whether it be the caste system or whether it be as you grow older. And I think you're reminded over and over again, whether it be you're going through the matchmaking system or something that you're not, you need to match a certain kind of, you will be judged. You will be judged for how you are, for how you look. And that will be kind of, you'll be reminded of that over and over again. 
as you continue to grow older. And I just don't like that we have developed this kind of notion or this subconsciously you think that you're not good enough just because of the color of your skin. And that is something that I do want to call out today. I think that's something we need to change. Thanks, Willa. As you said, the conversation about growing up here is for another day, another time, and the challenges here. But I think that's also would be a, an interesting conversation as well. Who would like to go next? Nabila and then Lauren, you want to chime in too? Sure. Yeah, no, Varda, I think you hit on most of the critical issues um, that we talk about when we speak about racism or discrimination in the South Asian communities, both in South Asian communities that constitute the diaspora in countries like the United States and across the world, but also within South Asia itself. A lot of that colorism manifests itself both among the sort of uh, the expat communities uh, and the immigrant communities as well as uh, communities in India. You know, it manifests itself in different ways and often I think being South Asian people of color, uh, we don't have the political vocabularies or the frameworks in which to talk about these issues, which makes them even more tricky and complex. So for example, while racism as a political artifact, a movement, a sort of a moral arc for justice has been framed in the American context. Um, colorism, uh, it, you know, it can't, be, it can't be compared, both not in terms of the scale and the impact that it has had on people, but also just the political vocabulary of those two things can't be compared. I think Varda touched on the social aspects of that, you know, incompleteness. It, it manifests itself not only as a class thing, um, which is where it kind of had its origins, where you would have, you know, the, uh, because it's because maybe South Asia is a hotter region, you know, it's uh, there's more sunshine here. Anyone who was part of the sort of laboring, the manual laboring classes, the working classes, who were exposed more to the outside world, you know, tended to tan. Uh, and then, you know, the sign of nobility and wealth and class became, you know, the act of being fair. Whether it's Bollywood or our cultural stories, this whole idea of being fair and fair is the word that, that is so commonly used. It's so common to our vocabularies, like you pointed out, the fair and lovely fairness cream ads, whether it's the fact that the word gori, which means fair, uh, keeps coming up in Bollywood songs. It's become so much of Indian matchmaking, arranged marriage space. People put out ads and, and profiles uh, online or in the newspaper, and it's so common just to read a fair, educated, home girl of a certain height and weight and with a certain kind of degree. It's become so much a part of our vocabulary. It's become so casual that I don't even think that we, we really ever take a step back and think about the bigger political ramifications. And I think that there's a lesson to be learned from other communities of people of color in other parts of the world who've even, you know, taken beauty standards and the fact that, you know, maybe, um, you know, curly hair is not professional enough, you know, and, and politicize that as an inherent part of the racism that communities experience. I think that there is room in the South Asian community to make those comparisons, even though they are completely different problems. And then, yes, of course, there is the problem of casteism. There is problems in, in India, for example, of racism against people from the northeast of India, you know, in, in the bordering states with China and the, in the East Asian countries who look different, uh, you know, in, in, they look more, you know, East Asian as compared to the North Indian or the South Indian belts. And there they experience so much racism. So communities that live in Delhi, for example, there have been so many stories where they've been, you know, neighbors have called the cops because their food smelt weird. So they, they had a problem and, and the authorities were called or they were told to, you know, vacate their houses or, you know, they get, they faced violence and assault 
uh, for, for looking different. So there are also those aspects of it. And I think that this conversation and building those linkages and alliances with conversations about racism in other communities is so important. So I'm really, really glad we're able to talk about some of these things in more detail today. Thanks, Nabil. We appreciate that. Lauren, any thoughts that you have on this? No, it's so great to, to hear from both of you about a community that I'm not a part of, but in, in some ways have been adjacent to and have had unique opportunities to kind of immerse myself. And I also really love that, you know, just in this first question, we're already, I'm already thinking of and seeing some, you know, common trends and threads that, you know, exist in the Black community as well. It's so interesting you talk about, um, both of you, you know, mentioned Fair and Lovely and, and you know, it reminded me took me back to my first experience, you know, visiting New Delhi a couple of years ago. And I remember I was so excited to go. I just had wanted to go to India for so many years. And I, you know, get to the hotel, turn on the TV. First thing I see is a fair and lovely ad. And I just hadn't really, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I, that that wasn't the first thing that I expected to see, you know, upon like landing on the ground in India, walked around, you know, different department stores and just aisle after aisle, you know, of, uh, of these creams. And it just really made me think that, you know, this is a colorism is a common thread, you know, between the South Asian um, and the black communities It manifests itself in different ways. It's, you know, on, on my end, I would say it's less, you know, acceptable to talk about creams out in the open or to talk about, you know, the, put it out there, you know, the benefits of being fair or lighter skinned as we generally um, describe it in the black community, but it's still so insidious and it affects how black women, black Black children see themselves, how they're perceived and received in the world and in professional spaces. So this this really is a conversation that could be happening, you know, in broader out in the open and and in broader forms. And I'm I'm glad that we're you know we're starting that conversation here today. And uh, Nabila, you just talked about you know what's seen as acceptable, you know, in the workspace from the South Asian perspective and then from the Black community perspective, you know, when it comes to natural hair standards, all across our communities of color, you know, we should be asking ourselves, like, can we bring our full selves to the workspace? And if not, why is that not seen as professional? And those are some of the deeper questions and, com and um, you know, common trends that I think we should be talking about. Thanks, Lauren. Let's look at the question a little deeper now and explore some of what you've been saying. And I'm wondering how some of these issues of colorism, racism, things that, you know, you know we hear when we're younger, how has that impacted you and in, in the things that you have done in pursuing your career in peace and security? I mean, how is it, how have you seen it manifested you know, as you have matured and gone forward in your career? Maybe we'll start with Nabila this time. Yes. And, you know, I want to begin answering that question um, with one very important thing that I think Varda touched on a little bit in her opening remarks, which is that a lot of this colorism and discrimination has very close intersections with gender in the South Asian community. As she rightly pointed out, if there are beauty standards and standards of professionalism in the workplace or being evaluated a certain way in the matchmaking mar market, sorry, I'm using that word, but that's what it feels like sometimes. It is targeted at women. And it's sort of, I think, growing up in a space where you do experience so many intersectional forms of discrimination, I think very early gives you the motivation and the tools uh, to do something that is, that is meaningful and impactful to those who stand at the intersections of these vulnerabilities. You know, it's not, you know, if you do grow up in a South Asian community, there is a pressure on you to become, you know, a straightforward doctor or an engineer or study, like, you know, get a management degree and go and make like a, you know, straightforward career with that. But you do feel inspired and motivated, you know, to, to reach 
to sort of do something that makes a difference, uh, you know, to the to the life of your own community and and other vulnerable communities like yourself. So, you know, getting into the security space, of course, you know, apart from a personal academic interest and all of those things, I think I have been influenced by being a woman in that space. Being a woman in South Asia, you know, you're also familiar with the scale of violence against women, you know, whether that is, you know, interpersonal, social, because of law and order, whether, you know, everything from harassment to sexual violence to to physical violence, whether it's crime or whether it's domestic abuse. So for example, if I go and work in the peacekeeping space, as I, I did in South Sudan, you know, it really affects me to know that when we talk about security or we're developing a security report, for example, we tend to talk more about, you know, groups of armed men killing each other, rustling cattle, taking over territories and regions, and we have less room to talk about violence against women as an instrument of war. And, you know, there, that has been a change that's obviously happening in, in the humanitarian sector in the US. But uh, I think we need to have a bigger conversation. And those are the, the ways in which I feel like my own trajectory is being impacted by this experience of discrimination. Great. Thank you. How about you, Weather? I appreciate you again, once again, raising that point of there is, I think, a clear distinction between how uh, colorism kind of falls on both sides. Like, uh, you know, if you're if you're a man or a woman in, in, in a thing or whatever your gender identity is, I think you're going to feel it very differently. And I think how this impacts us professionally, it's important to recognize. And Vanya, I know you kind of touched upon what I the comment I made a little earlier, the dis- experience of growing up as a colored kid in the south of the United States was is a completely a whole conversation that can be had very separately. But I think it's important to recognize that that me being a woman of color in the United States, me having grown up in the south of the United States, or now being in the national security space, it's kind of tags into all the issues, the diversity and inclusion issues we had talked about on our last podcast. You have to deal with all of that. The conversation we are having today, I think, focuses on the experiences of a South Asian woman who has also had to deal with those issues within her community growing up, the insecurities that you have had to face, the obstacles you have had to overcome to just make it professionally to where you are in your career, only to then be in an environment that is not always receptive to everything that you have had to experience and endure to get to where you are. So if, if our nat- national security or generally the peace and security, our allies in the space want to do something about it, just take a moment to pause and listen to our stories. Just listen to our stories and what it is that we have been through to get to where we are, only to still experience, we're still trying to work to make things better for people in the national security space, no matter what that story looks like for you. But we recognize that you've also been through obstacles just to get there. And I think the biggest thing that I feel that this conversation, for me personally, I think it's the insecurities that are developed at a young age in young women of color in the South Asian community. I think I, if, if there's one thing I could kind of reach out and say to them is that the color of your skin is not going to be an obstacle to your success. The matchmaking system may tell you you're not fair enough. But if, if you want to be successful and pursue your professional career, the color of your skin hopefully is not going to be something that you will let yourself hold you back. Do not think that that's an obstacle for you to get to where you need to be and where you can contribute to. And there's, that does not in any way diminish the power of your voice in these policy conversations. So I do think that 
the colorism is probably a more obstacle to your personal kind of life in the South Asian community, but professionally it has, you, you can continue to move forward. And, and there's a lot of women here, a lot of groups like WCAPS that are working to make the space more inclusive for all. Great. And your comment makes me think of the importance of mentorships because when you're young and you're a woman of color, something that helps to prevent one from seeing color as an obstacle is having, having mentors who can help you understand that it's not obstacle. So that's, that's one of the important things of, of having mentors. Bonnie, I do agree with you. The mentorship, I think, is so important. Again, I'm grateful for groups like WCAPS offering mentorship programs to women who can use it kind of, you know, later in their professional careers. But I think there's like no age that doesn't, would not benefit from mentorship, whether you're young in high school, you're, you know, even younger than that. I think um, mentorship is extremely important and can actually help overcome some of these obstacles. I think just to add to the point about mentorship in communities like WCAPS, I think the other important thing they do for women of color is representation. That is so important, you know, and I'm not talking about at the very highest levels. If you see somebody like Kamala Harris uh, running for the second highest office in the land, uh, you know, you feel inspired no matter what your politics are. But it's about representation in spaces like WCAPS. So, you know, if you, if you become a member of a community like this, you see women doing amazing work in a field that you have earlier only seen dominated by men mainly. Uh, but also men from a certain region or a certain, you know, class or group. And then suddenly you see amazing women from around the world, especially from the global south, represented in, you know, policymaking, multilateral bodies, in, in the peacekeeping and security and disarmament communities. And that makes such a big difference, especially when we get together in platforms like this. And then we can put our voices out there for, you know, younger women who have only ever seen uniformed generals who are all men just gathered together and setting the agenda for the world and we tell them that no we're, we're on our way there and uh, very soon that landscape is going to look different and the agenda is going to be set by somebody else. Exactly. Lauren do you want to chime in here please? I do yeah this is a great a great thread you know on mentorship and I also wanted to pick up on something that Warda said about kind of unlearning what we've been taught within our own communities and, and I'm sure that all of us have had kind of that you know moment and we're continuing to work through yeah, the things that we've internalized about ourselves. And then we walk into the workspace and you know, picking up on what Nabila was just saying about the importance of representation, we're in workspaces where we don't often, you know, don't see many people or don't see any people that look like us. And so then you've got to kind of think about what we were taught and what we learned, you know, as children about our skin colors, about you know being women, whatever, and then take that, you know, kind of try to unlearn that and so that we can be our you know fullest selves and best selves in the workplace and that's just kind of the that's just an aspect of the additional burden I think that we feel and we face um, as women of color and this conversation is also making me think about how you know grateful I am that you know for my parents from a, from a very young age I mean they just very much did what they could to keep me from thinking about like the color of my skin as any sort of a burden and that doesn't mean that we didn't talk about like the African-American experience, actually the, the exact opposite. You know, I was um, taught all the stories of my history of the great men and women who, Black African-American men and women who like shaped this country, made it what it is today. So that was how I saw my history and that was how I saw myself coming up. And that was just so 
has been so important to me in increasing and contributing to my confidence, you know, as I walk into a workspace doesn't mean that it, st it still means that I have to deal with all the other forces and factors that would tell me that because I'm a woman of color, I should be a certain way or not be a certain way. But it just, it just speaks to how early on we've really got to like, you know, for us as we get older, you know, and still in our children, what we believe about ourselves and that like we can do anything. There's nothing holding us back. Actually, you know, in fact, we've had to overcome way more than the many of the people that we're, we're working around. So that makes us just that more resilient and take more ownership and, um, you know, pride in what we've been able to do so far, just because we've had to overcome so much um, on so many different levels. There's something that Lauren just said that I think is very important and something that I think hits at probably the root of some of this issue, particularly in the South Asian community. Looking back at our history, I think, Nabila, I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on this too, but colonialism, I think for, for me, for, for, uh, for like, you know, I'm originally from Pakistan. Pakistan and India got gained independence in 1947. It has not even been a hundred years since these countries, uh, you know, became independent. But I think there's a recent memory of British rule in the subcontinent, uh, at the time was a subcontinent, now South Asia. Um, and it, I think there may have been a standard that is set that what the British left behind, whether it be their schools, their postal systems, like the train tracks, like all the railway systems, like all the stuff that they left behind would have probably been perceived as more superior than what we had before. That rule that they, like, you know, them having a lighter skin tone, I think is a that visual of them being the ones in power and then also having that lighter skin tone, I think sets a standard that people probably want to achieve in terms of that beauty standard that also gets subconsciously set that that's probably where I want to head towards. Like, I just, I'm curious how much some of these politics and, and, and the history of kind of plays into how we continue, the things that we continue to fight till this day, these biases that we still continue to like unlearn as you, as you so nicely put it, uh, Lauren. We, we are trying to unlearn these things that were put in, brought, brought upon us uh, for so many hundreds of years of history. And I, I do think it's still, even though, uh, you know, 1947 seems a long time ago, I, I still think in terms of just a general timeline of the history of this world, it's not that long ago and we're still trying to unlearn. I believe very strongly, just to uh, quickly respond to Varda, that, that structural issues are so important and it's so important to be conscious of biases that are rooted in history that come from, uh, you know, the considerations of political classes, of economic classes that are powerful. There is a huge merit to the argument that a lot of it has to do with inspiring young women, you know, light a fire in themselves to do better and to fight for, uh, you know, representation or, uh, you know, it, but it, it can't just be an individual thing. I think it's so important to talk about not only the origins of these biases that, as you rightly said, are, um, you know, some of them definitely are in our colonial history, uh, represented not only in the fact that someone with lighter skin is seen as superior in our social situations, but also someone who speaks English, 
better than a South Asian language becomes a signifier of, you know, the, not just the fact that they're educated, but, you know, that they're probably more sophisticated and they're probably more worthy of, uh, you know, being in the political classes or being getting the jobs that are, you know, the, the most desired jobs in an economy. But also to look at, for example, the way corporates, corporate interests sometimes exploits the, the social ills that do exist. I mean, the very fact that you have fairness creams and then maybe to a certain extent you had this idea where, you know, South Asian girls were being brought up as to, you know, put, you know, turmeric and other stuff on their face to get lighter, not to drink chai, as you said, not to go out in the sun. Uh, but then you had a bunch of corporates who came into the picture, and this is true of like vast parts of Africa as well, who decided that they would not only exploit, but maybe exacerbate this, this social sentiment that exists and try to monetize it. And so we started seeing advertisements where it was not just about, you know, a mother telling her daughter, this is, you know, good for you because you will be, you know, more desirable maybe as, you know, a, a wife or whatever when you grew up. But you had these lovely ads where a woman would walk into an interview for a job and she would lose out that job to the fairer candidate and then she would go home and then, you know, somebody, her grandmother would hand her a tube of this fair and lovely and she puts it on and she goes back to the interview and she's hired and she's feeling more confident. And so, yeah, we know, apart from colonialism, I think thinking a little bit about the structures that perpetuate this is also important just so that, you know, young women and men uh, don't feel like it's, you know, completely on them or that they're struggling against a system that they are personally not able to change. Yeah, I think this is this is so important. I, I feel like I just learned a lot by listening to you, Nabila, because yeah, well, and, and you are too, like breaking down all the different competing factors that kind of have contributed to where we are today. You know, you mentioned 1947, Warda, I think of, you know, 1619, which at the end of the day was really not that, you know, not that long ago and, and just created such a consistent thread, you know, between the time that the first African person was brought to the United States, you know, in bondage to, to where we are today, almost 400 years. But all those different factors, I think, really help explain, and we're, we're talking about, you know, the dynamics within our communities, and then we're presenting, you know, to people who maybe are not in our communities, some of the factors that contribute to how we see ourselves and move in the world today. I think that the point that I was thinking about while you were both were talking is that this kind of draws home, like, it's not, you can't, from the outside, just look into our communities and say like, oh, you know, they have a problem with darker skinned people or, or colorism or, you know, what a problem, you know, that the black community or the South Asian community, you know, deals with this colorism. Absolutely not. I mean, we didn't, our communities didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, lighter skin is better. It's the confluence of all these different factors, colonialism um, across the world, as you both have mentioned, uh, the commercial factors, all of these things conspired to you know, create a kind of a subconscious thinking in our communities that I think, you know, personally, I would go out of limb and say would not have ever entered the picture if not for external factors, because, you know, our communities existed for thousands of years as they were. So it's such an important thing to think about. I think there's just not enough teaching or, you know, historical perspective um, across our communities and not of color to understand how we've got to where we are today. And that's, that's a huge part of the problem. There's so much, again, unlearning and relearning that has to be done. Great. Thanks for that. And just want to move on a bit to another related topic. And as all of you know, one thing that WCAPS is also doing is our organization solidarity uh, work where we have quite a few organizations engaged in commitments that were made at the, in the June 9th WCAP Solidarity Statement that they signed on to, and they have the 12 commitments, and we're working 
through the 12 commitments with the different organizations to develop strategies and goals and metrics for measuring success. With that in mind, I'm wondering how do, in your view, how do organizations deal with some of these issues that, you, that you've been raising? I know that, you know, not putting you to say anything about any one, any particular one that you might have worked at, but just more in a, in a general sense, if you prefer, you know, what is, you know, how do, how do organizations deal with this and, and how are they at dealing with this, do you think? Or what lessons should they be taking from this? From the organizational perspective, and I guess, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, organizations are mostly, you know, run by people not from communities of color. So I think from that perspective, and I've said this before, again, kind of taking an internal accounting of the culture that's been created at certain organizations. I don't know. I mean, just something as easy as looking around and saying, you know, do we have a diverse representation of people among our staff, you know, across different levels of the organization? And, you know, in the often chance that that's not the case, stepping back and saying, okay, taking an honest accounting of why that might be. And I think in, in a lot of cases, it's not that people of color don't, you know, want to be in these spaces. It's not that there aren't enough qualified people of color to be able to take on, you know, positions and organizations. I think a lot of it has to do with the cultures that have been created and perpetuated and just not taking seriously the need to create an environment that's conducive to people of color wanting to be there and feeling as though, you know, they're going to be supported. Yeah. So I think an honest accounting is the first step. Yeah. Great. Wada, do you have any thoughts on this? I think for the Organization Solidarity Initiative, uh, first of all, I'm just really grateful that it exists. I'm grateful to all the organizations who have signed on to the commitments and plan to take action to make our security, peace and security field, a more inclusive space for all. That being said, there's one thing that I'm starting to notice as of the summer, and I want to make sure that the organizations and the individuals and the ent entities that are signing on to are signing on to diversity and inclusion kind of commitments are aware that diversity and inclusion is not just fancy HR term to sign on to. Just because the popularity around it, uh, there's so much popularity around it, there's so much momentum and traction, it just it's not just a term. For us, it is a lot deeper. There's, there's, there's stories, there's people, there's individuals, there's identities that are really counting on making our spaces more diverse and inclusive. So when, when we are kind of taking on these initiatives and when you are signing on to these commitments, it's not just supposed to happen on the organization level where your organization signed on to this thing, but think about it on a very personal level. And that means how are you kind of carrying yourself on a, on, um, you know, in your work on a day-to-day -day basis when you are kind of surrounded by people of color in those spaces. Sharing the mic on Twitter is great. Are you sharing the mic with somebody in a meeting? Are you sharing the mic on a personal level with people of color who are in the room? Are you giving credit where credit is due or are you taking credit for other people's work? I think it needs to be understood that this, this is not an HR term or something that's supposed to make your organization look better by being a part of this initiative. This is supposed to be an actionable thing that you do on a person-to-person -person level. And I think that's something that can only be done and what better understood when you take a chance to listen to stories that are being shared from these communities of color and what people's experiences are and how you as an individual, no matter what the color of your skin can do to kind of 
support each other and be mindful of some of these unconscious biases and eliminate them from your workspace. Navila? Yes, both both Lauren and Varda have made some excellent point. And I think that is really the key for organizations to look inwards first. A lot of the social issues of our time, whether it is you know environmental concerns, uh, climate action, or even social justice, in whatever form it manifests itself in any context, a lot of organizations take it on board and, and do it as something external facing. How can we put out a tweet, an Instagram post, or, you know, otherwise virtue signal to the outside world. And I think as a first step, organizations actually need to look inside their own work cultures and make the fixes there. Whatever it is, whether it's racism, discrimination, or even climate action, are you a sustainable business before you go out and fund a small environment club in a college and give them some money and then just tick that box in your ESG? And I think that organizations will have to go an extra step because it's not just about you know making sure you have on staff more women, more people of color, more women of color, but the, the specific issues that they want addressed. Now, whenever you have like a, a dominant form of person who already staffs an organization, you have informal whisper networks, you have you know old boys clubs. You may you may already have cultures that take care of their problems as in when they when they occur. But if you find yourself the first, say, South Asian woman of color in an organization that's dominated by either men or people who are not from your community, you'll find it that much more difficult to actually raise that issue. You may doubt yourself and say, maybe I'm being unnecessarily fussy. Maybe this is not the kind of thing that we talk about in this organization because either it's not professional or, you know, this is not, it's not a concern that anyone else seems to have. So maybe I'm just overplaying this in my mind, but I need to talk about it. We had this moment with sexual harassment, you know, a number of years back when companies took, took it upon themselves to make spaces for those problems to be taken up, to make forums, to make sure that there was capacity in organizations to talk about sexual harassment and discrimination against women. I think we need to build that kind of capacity in organizations as well, not just hire a diversity and inclusion officer, but make sure that they have the right tools with which to understand the specific concerns, the specific hiring problems and challenges, the specific workplace problems and challenges, and then create those formal and informal networks that fix workspaces for everyone so that they work for everyone. Because at the end of the day, that's, it's something that's going to help organizations themselves. Yeah, these are all great points. And thanks for raising this issue about the commitment to the actual work. And Nabila mentioning that it's more than just hiring a person because too often it's okay, I hired somebody. So now we can just keep going. (laughs) And it's too easy to go just back to the status quo and say this one person has to do everything or, you know, we did a training and now we're all good without the recognition that this is, this is hard work. And it's not going to, it's not going to be change from one training you need continuous engagement and trainings and actually doing the work outside what may seem like an easy fix because it's not an easy fix and you know i guess and and i have a couple more questions and you know we'll able to sign off but i I, in related to this i mean do you do you think that white people and uh have an understanding of this do you think that, that there's an understanding of these challenges that we see every day and i think so many people have asked the question, why now? Why is it that now everybody's waking up to what's happened, you know, that people of color, particularly Black people, have faced for so many years in this country and in other countries, you know, and that people of color have been 
struggling with for years and seems like 2020, you know, and, you know, people have said there's a confluence of a lot of things have happened. And I know we touched on this a little bit on our last podcast, but do you think they're getting it now? Do you think that there's a, a real moment or what's really happening to, in your view? That's, that's such a good question. And I feel that for our white colleagues, or if you're not a person of color, it's okay. I think what I appreciated this year that happened is this acknowledgement that you may be, you may have blinders on and because you just haven't been born into an experience that you do experience as a person of color or as a woman of color. I don't know if our colleagues have fully being able to understand what that experience looks like for us. And I, I, I think that sense of acknowledgement is just a good first step. And again, it comes back to the whole idea of them just, just listening to experiences that are different to your own, just being open to the fact that you have not had to endure what a person of color has had to endure, again, not only in the national security community or in your workspace as an adult much later, but since you were a child growing up, those experiences that you've had to overcome of just being a colored kid and whether that be with it from people within your community or people outside of it and the things you've heard or, or that have been said to you that kind of shape who you are as a person. One of the experiences that I do want to kind of just highlight as, as another example is post 9-11. For me personally, I think I noticed how I had to shape my personality in a way, and I noticed the impact on my personality now as a result of it, of just making sure that when I'm interacting with others, it's, I don't come off as threatening to them. I do remember uh, the reactions that I, I got post 9-11 and how, you know, the discrimination that, that, would, that the Muslim community faced post 9-11 or, or people from the South Asian community faced after post 9-11. And to be in response to that, we actually ended up, like, I know I, my, my defense mechanism was just smiling and being nice and being kind and exuding kindness, hoping that the other person would reciprocate that because you don't know where that source of discrimination may come from. And I don't think that our white colleagues would recognize what that means or people who have not lived that experience would recognize what that means. And I think just the acknowledgement that you don't, you may have not fully understood is just a good first step. But there is just so much work to do because just because we've acknowledged it may not mean we've acknowledged it all. And we're still having to do a lot of work to make sure that our spaces are inclusive for all. And, and even though we are starting to talk more about diversity, equity, inclusion in our workspaces, I do think there's still so much more we can do in action to change the space and make it better. So jump on that. I think a lot of what you described, Warda, is, is kind of what I was thinking about is that, and, and getting back to your question, Bonnie, is that it's a privilege, or it has been a privilege for, you know, the majority white male community that kind of, you know, leads a lot of organizations in DC and elsewhere to not have to think about these issues or not have had 
to or wanted to or chosen to really until you know this past summer and you know i'm very glad that the convergence of factors created some momentum and that you know even just through the the wcaps mechanism that there is a formalized process to you know start implementing some actionable change but you know i think about all the times in the past you know many years decade who knows how long that I've, well, in my professional career, so less, less time than that, but I think about all the times that I've been in, office, in an office space, you know, the day of or the day after some Black man or Black woman, you know, was killed and just having been the only person there and, you know, those topics and that discussion was never had in the space. And I think, especially, you know, just in the past couple of years, it's become more acceptable to have these conversations within the workspace. Even a few years ago, it definitely was not, but that doesn't mean that, you know, people of color and black people have not been feeling the same things we're feeling now all throughout that time. And, and, you know, it's weirdly enough, you know, this past June and May and June as the you know, outrage about George Floyd was building, you know, that was actually a better moment for me because I was actually at home, you know, with family and many of us were at home with family to be able to process and talk about these things and not have to be one way in the office space and then be out in our communities and not have to bridge that, have to bridge a divide. So I, th- I think that's an important thing to consider when it feels like a trend or it feels like Ford have said, you know, the popular thing to be talking and thinking about diversity and equity and inclusion. Uh, uh, People of color, African-American people, South Asian people, people of color in this country have been where we are now for so long. And now I think we're at a point where we don't want, like the change has to, this has to actually lead to to actionable change because definitely we're not going backward. And I think we're going to do what we can to make sure that this momentum continues going forward so that you know, future generations of um, people of color and workspaces don't have to feel like they, you know, can't bring their full selves um, into the workspace. And just to, to plug one of the many podcasts that I listened to during this time, the Michelle Obama podcast, I was just listening to an episode recently that talked just about this issue and that, you know, something she sees, uh, Michelle Obama um, sees as a positive, you know, for women of my age and my community, or my generation rather, is that she would admonish all of us to not accept anymore that we have to be two different people, you know, in our workspaces um, and outside of them. Like bring your full self because that's that's what will jolt the system and that's what will, you know, kind of force others to say, okay, well, I have to change my organization or I have to modify my, my organization to allow everyone to be their full selves. Just to jump on both of those very important points, I think this is, uh, so many things have come to a head in this very historic moment, it's one of the biggest civil rights moments in, in the history of the world. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it can be compared to many of these historic thresholds that we've had looking back at the last few decades. Also a great moment and an opportunity for allyship. And I'm not just talking about, you know, with, with white colleagues, but also with, you know, the intersectional movements, whether it's, you know, South Asian communities that have experienced Islamophobia or racism in their own communities, whether it is women who recently went through the big sort of the Me Too movement where everyone came out with the fact that sexual violence was an experience that was shared more widely than even the, you know, most of us had thought about, even though we have been thinking about feminist issues for a long time. I think this is a great opportunity for a lot of communities like the South Asian community to realize and, and understand that there are so many issues, as we touched on earlier in this podcast, that we have in common. It's not just about, you know, the, the way that standards of professionalism and beauty are set in workplaces, but, you know, just in the way that we interact with, with other 
communities with cultural spaces, whether we have the same kind of cultural and social spaces as the dominant classes, you know, wherever we live and work. It's a great opportunity for us to draw on our own experiences for, for those of us who are in the global south and see how much that links to the way that the social justice movement is being waged in the United States today. It's an opportunity to recognize those very, you know, very close interlinkages without making any kind of false equivalence between, you know, the trauma that one, you know, community has suffered is obviously always very different from the trauma another community has suffered or continues to suffer. But then just to acknowledge that we all have so much in common and that this is a moment that we can't squander and that we must all, when you have the momentum to push and make that final change where you are at a tipping point, it's so important for all of us to come together and say, this is a tipping point for so many of us who have been you know, denied and deprived and discriminated against in so many different ways and then work for actionable change. And I think that kind of momentum helps everybody. That's great. Thank you for all of those important views. And so, you know, I think I'd like to end with, Lauren, you touched on this a bit. And I always like to end with thinking, what do we tell our younger selves or younger girls who are maybe experiencing some of the things that you experienced and you talked about at the beginning of this podcast? I mean, what do you say to your younger self if you saw a girl come up to you and you've noticed that she's experiencing some of the things that you did? What do you tell her? to encourage her to pursue her dreams and not to be not to be distracted or she couldn't do what she would like to do because of what she's being told. And we'll start with you, Warla. I think I would want to tell my younger self to not believe anything that those skin whitening cream ads are telling you. You do not need that. Put that stuff away <laughs> and focus on you. You are beautiful the way you are. And more than that, you color of your skin does not determine how far and how successful you can be. Again, there's mentors out there. Some of them are on this podcast today, Nabila Jamshade, Lauren Williams, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, people who have gone on to do amazing things, who I think set ex amazing examples and are role models to all these younger girls. And there are people who will be there to support you to advance in your career because at the end of the day, that is you. That is the core of you, of who you are as a person. The external is something that we are fighting. We're fighting for people to not look at us for how we look and what our identity is, but we are also fighting for people to accept us and find the beauty in us the way we are and all that it is that we have to offer. So I cannot wait for these younger women to bring their voices to our tables, and I cannot wait to see them kind of carry on a torch that I hope is much brighter uh, than the one we that was passed down to us. And for them to contribute because we're hoping to slowly squash colorism and we're hoping that, that their success, uh, they believe that they, their success is not dependent on the color of their skin. That sounds great. Thank you. Thank you, Wada, for that. Uh, Nabila? I would tell my younger self, but also any young woman who had question for me today, I would just tell all of them that your voice is more meaningful than you think it is at any age even at, at an age where you're a student or whether you're just starting out in your career, your voice is so important, especially in this moment when the changes that we're beginning to see and the movements that we are beginning to birth are so much a product of a sea of voices. It's just a group of ordinary people who became from, you know, a couple of tens to, to hundreds to thousands 
around the world raised their voices about the right issues, it became a wave of asking for change. It became the kind of wave that the most powerful institutions, establishments and leaders around the world are having to pay attention to. And so from both these perspectives, from being someone who's growing up with pressures of whether they're beauty standards or cultural pressures or social pressures or a lack of representation in the kind of career you want to, to work in, or whether it is about the big social justice issues of your time, I'd just like to remind my younger self and also you know any young woman out there that your voice is a lot more meaningful and it's a lot louder and really all uh, you have to do is you know if you are inspired to speak truths to power if you're inspired to speak up for what you believe in there is only value in doing so and it's going to change things for you and your peers and your colleagues going forward ditto to to all of that what i'd like to remind my younger self about and i probably should keep reminding myself of this is that for us, you know, as women of color who have who are in the spaces that we're in right now, like we have to start thinking of ourselves like as an asset to every room that we walk in. Not only, you know, just a benefit or I've often, you know, seen it a, a privilege for myself, you know, to be invited or to be, you know, allowed in certain spaces that I've been in over my career. But I would want to flip the switch for younger people and say like, no, actually, you know, it's a benefit to that space that you are there and everything that you bring, your history, everything to the table is an asset to that organization just by being there. So that's, that's something I, I want to keep reminding myself of. And also, I often think about the fact that it's hope for myself. I, I really do believe that the world would be better with, in, with the young, you know, diverse and extremely talented people that I know, all of you, you know, on this call, in charge, you know, I, I, that makes me excited. I, I think that people in our generation and people younger than us who are growing up in a world where we don't see all of our diversity, you know, as a burden, but as an asset, I can't wait for that, for that world when we are, you know, leading in international spaces and domestic spaces. I think that's, that's the mentality that we have and we're going to take that into positions of power in the future. So I think that's something that younger people and, and all of us um, should hold on to. Great. That's wonderful advice from all three of you. Thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time to do this. So this has been a great conversation, our second edition of uh, A Seat at the Table. So we'll be having more of these podcasts in the future. So, so those of you who are listening, please continue to follow us. We're on our website, of course. You know, we think these are continuing to be very, very important conversations for everyone to hear. So I want to, again, thank Wada, Lauren, and Nabila for doing this and for all the work that you do to keep us all safe, at peace, and secure. So with that, I want to sign off and say thanks again. This is Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, and you've listened to our WCAB's A Seat at the Table conversation.